This is Article 116 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, Section 116, The Galaxy, September 1870. Memoranda by Mark Twain. A Royal Compliment. The latest report about the Spanish crown is that it will now be offered to Prince Alfonso, the second son of the King of Portugal, who is but five years of age. The Spaniards have hunted through all the nations of Europe for a king. They tried to get a Portuguese in the person of Dom Luis, who is an old ex-monarch. They tried to get an Italian in the person of Victor Emmanuel's young son, the Duke of Genoa. They tried to get a Spaniard, in the person of Espartero, who was an octogenarian. Some of them desired a French bourbon, Montpensier. Some of them a Spanish bourbon, the Prince of Asturias. Some of them an English prince, one of the sons of Queen Victoria. They have just tried to get the German Prince Leopold, but they have thought it better to give him up than take a war along with him. It is a long time since we first suggested to them to try an American ruler. We can offer them a large number of able and experienced sovereigns to pick from, men skilled in statesmanship, versed in the science of government, and adepts in all the arts of administration, men who could wear the crown with dignity and rule the kingdom at a reasonable expense. There is not the least danger of Napoleon threatening them if they take an American sovereign. In fact, we have no doubt he would be pleased to support such a candidature. We are unwilling to mention names, though we have a man in our eye whom we wish they had in theirs. New York Tribune. It would be but an ostentation of modesty to permit such a pointed reference to myself to pass unnoticed. This is the second time that the Tribune, no doubt sincerely looking to the best interests of Spain and the world at large, has done me the great and unusual honor to propose me as a fit person to fill the Spanish throne. Why the Tribune should single me out in this way from the midst of a dozen Americans of higher political prominence is a problem which I cannot solve. Beyond a somewhat intimate knowledge of Spanish history and a profound veneration for its great names and illustrious deeds, I feel that I possess no merit that should peculiarly recommend me to this royal distinction. I cannot deny that Spanish history has always been mother's milk to me. I am proud of every Spanish achievement, from Hernando Cortes's victory at Thermopylae down to Vasco Nunes de Balboa's discovery of the Atlantic Ocean, and of every splendid Spanish name, from Don Quixote and the Duke of Wellington down to Don Caesar de Bazan. However, these little graces of erudition are of small consequence, being more showy than serviceable. In case the Spanish scepter is pressed upon me, and the indications unquestionably are that it will be, I shall feel it necessary to have certain things set down and distinctly understood beforehand. For instance, my salary must be paid quarterly in advance. In these unsettled times it will not do to trust. If Isabella had adopted this plan, she would be roosting on her ancestral throne to-day, for the simple reason that her subjects never could have raised three months of a royal salary in advance, and of course they could not have discharged her until they had squared up with her. My salary must be paid in gold. When greenbacks are fresh in a country, they are too fluctuating. My salary has got to be put at the ruling market rate, 
I am not going to cut under on the trade, and they are not going to trail me a long way from home and then practice on my ignorance and play me for a royal North Adams Chinaman, by any means. As I understand it, imported kings generally get five millions a year and house-rent free. Young George of Greece gets that. As the revenues only yield two millions, he has to take the national note for considerable. But even with things in that sort of shape he is better fixed than he was in Denmark, where he had to eternally stand up because he had no throne to sit on, and had to give bail for his board, because a royal apprentice gets no salary there while he is learning his trade. England is the place for that. Fifty thousand dollars a year Great Britain pays on each royal child that is born, and this is increased from year to year as the child becomes more and more indispensable to his country. Look at Prince Arthur. At first he only got the usual birth bounty, but now that he has got so that he can dance, there is simply no telling what wages he gets. I should have to stipulate that the Spanish people wash more and endeavor to get along with less quarantine. Do you know Spain keeps her ports fast locked against foreign trade three-fourths of each year? because one day she is scared about the cholera, and the next about the plague, and the next the measles, next the whooping cough, the hives, and the rash. But she does not mind leonine leprosy and elephantiasis any more than a great and enlightened civilization minds freckles. Soap would soon remove her anxious distress about foreign distempers. The reason arable land is so scarce in Spain is because the people squander so much of it on their persons, and then when they die it is improvidently buried with them. I should feel obliged to stipulate that Marshal Serrano be reduced to the rank of constable or even roundsman. He is no longer fit to be city marshal. A man who refused to be king because he was too old and feeble is ill-qualified to help sick people to the station-house when they are armed, and their form of delirium tremens is of the exuberant and demonstrative kind. I should also require that a force be sent to chase the late Queen Isabella out of France. Her presence there can work no advantage to Spain, and she ought to be made to move at once, though, poor thing, she has been chased enough heretofore for a Spanish woman. I should also require that I am at this moment authoritatively informed that the Tribune did not mean me after all. Very well. I do not care two cents. The Galaxy, September, 1870. Memoranda by Mark Twain. The Approaching Epidemic. One calamity to which the death of Mr. Dickens dooms this country has not awakened the concern to which its gravity entitles it. We refer to the fact that the nation is to be lectured to death and read to death all next winter by Tom, Dick, and Harry, with poor lamented Dickens for a pretext. All the vagabonds who can spell will afflict the people with readings from Pickwick and Copperfield, and all the insignificants who have been ennobled by the notice of the great novelist, or transfigured by his smile, will make a marketable commodity of it now and turn the sacred reminiscence to the practical use of procuring bread and butter. The lecture rostrum will fairly swarm with these fortunates. Already the signs of it are perceptible. Behold how the unclean creatures are wending toward the dead lion and gathering to the feast. Reminiscences of Dickens, a lecture by John Smith, who heard him read eight times. Remembrance of Charles Dickens, 
a lecture by john jones who saw him once in a street-car and twice in a barber-shop recollections of mr dickens a lecture by john brown who gained a wide fame by writing deliriously appreciative critiques and rhapsodies upon the great author's public readings and who shook hands with the great author upon various occasions and held converse with him several times readings from dickens by john white who has the great delineator's style and manner perfectly having attended all his readings in this country and made these things a study always practicing each reading before retiring and while it was hot from the great delineator's lips upon this occasion mr w will exhibit the remains of a cigar which he saw mr dickens smoke this relic is kept in a solid silver box made purposely for it sights and sounds of the great novelist a popular lecture by john gray who waited on his table all the time he was at the grand hotel new york and still has in his possession and will exhibit to the audience a fragment of the last piece of bread which the lamented author tasted in this country heart treasures of precious moments with literature's departed monarch a lecture by miss serena amelia trephenia mcspadden who still wears and will always wear a glove upon the hand made sacred by the clasp of dickens only death shall remove it readings from dickens by mrs j o'hooligan murphy who washed for him familiar talks with the great author a narrative lecture by john thomas for two weeks his valet in america and so forth and so on this isn't half the list the man who has a toothpick once used by charles dickens will have to have a hearing and the man who once rode in an omnibus with charles dickens and the lady to whom charles dickens granted the hospitalities of his umbrella during a storm and the person who possesses a hole which once belonged in a handkerchief owned by charles dickens be patient and long-suffering good people for even this does not fill up the measure of what you must endure next winter there is no creature in all this land who has had any personal relations with the late mr dickens however slight or trivial but will shoulder his way to the rostrum and inflict his testimony upon his helpless countrymen to some people it is fatal to be noticed by greatness the galaxy september eighteen seventy memoranda by mark twain favors from correspondence an unknown friend in cleveland sends me a printed paragraph signed lucretia and says i venture to forward to you the enclosed article taken from a news correspondence in a new haven paper feeling confident that for gushing tenderness it has never been equaled even that touching western production which you printed in the june galaxy by way of illustrating what californian journalists term hogwash is thin when compared with the unctuous ooze of lucretia the clevelander has a correct judgment as lucretia's paragraph hereunto appended will show one lovely morning last week the pearly gates of heaven were left ajar and white-robed angels earthward came bearing on their snowy pinions a lovely babe silently to a quiet home nest where love and peace abide the angels came and placed the infant softly on a young mother's arm saying in sweet musical strains lady the saviour bids you take this child and nurse it for him 
the low-toned music died away as the angels passed upward to their bright home but the baby girl sleeps quietly in her new-found home we wish thee joy young parents in thy happiness this if i have been rightly informed is not the customary method of acquiring offspring and for all its seeming plausibility it does not look to me to be above suspicion i have lived many years in this world and i never knew of an infant being brought to a party by angels or other unauthorized agents but it made more or less talk in the neighborhood it may be miss lucretia that the angels consider new haven a more eligible place to raise children in than the realms of eternal day and are capable of deliberately transferring infants from the one locality to the other but i shall have to get you to excuse me i look at it differently it would be hard to get me to believe such a thing and i will tell you why however never mind you know yourself that the thing does not stand to reason still if you were present when the babe was brought so silently to that quiet home nest and placed in that soft manner on the young mother's arm and if you heard the sweet musical strains which the messengers made and could not recognize the tune and feel justified in believing that it and likewise the messengers themselves were of supersublunary origin i pass and so i leave the question open but i will say and do say that i have not read anything sweeter than that paragraph for seventy or eighty years the galaxy september eighteen seventy memoranda by mark twain another correspondent writes as follows from new york having read your beef contract in the may galaxy with a great deal of gratification I showed it to a friend of mine, who after reading it said he did not believe a word of it, and that he was sure it was nothing but a pack of lies, that it was a libel on the government, and the man who wrote it ought to be prosecuted. I thought this was as good as the contract itself, and knew it would afford you some amusement. Yours truly, S.S.G. That does amuse me, but does not surprise me. It is not possible to write a burlesque so broad that some innocent will not receive it in good faith as being a solemn statement of fact. Two of the lamest that ever were cobbled up by literary shoemakers went the rounds two or three months ago, and excited the wonder and led captive the faith of many unprejudiced people. One was a sickly invitation about a remote valley in Arizona, where all the lost hairpins and such odds and ends as had disappeared from the toilet-tables of the world for a generation had somehow been mysteriously gathered together, and this poor little production wound up with a prophecy by an Apache squaw to the effect that, by-and-by, heap muchy shake, big town muchy shake all down, a prophecy which pointed inexorably at San Francisco, and was awfully suggestive of its coming fate. The other shallow invention was one about some mud-turtle of a Mississippi diving-bell artist finding an ancient copper canoe, roofed and hermetically sealed, and believed to contain the remains of De Soto. Now it could not have marred, but only symmetrically finished, so feeble an imposture as that, to have added that De Soto's name was deciphered upon a tombstone which was found tagging after the sunken canoe by a string. 
plenty of people even believed that story of a south american doctor who had discovered a method of chopping off people's heads and putting them on again without discommoding the party of the second part and who finally got a couple of heads mixed up and transposed yet did the fitting of them on so neatly that even the experimentees themselves thought everything was right until each found that his restored head was recalling believing in and searching after moles scars and other marks which had never existed upon his body and at the same time refusing to remember or recognize similar marks which had always existed upon the said body a bogus proclamation is a legitimate inspiration of genius but any infant can contrive such things as those i have been speaking of they really require no more brains than it does to be a practical joker perhaps it is not risking too much to say that even the innocuous small reptile they call the village wag is able to build such inventions before i end this paragraph and subject i wish to remark that maybe the gentleman who said my beef contract article was a libel upon the government was right though i had certainly always thought differently about it i wrote that article in washington in november eighteen sixty seven during andrew johnson's reign it was suggested by senator stewart's account of a tedious tiresome and exasperating search which he had made through the land office and the treasury department among no end of lofty and supercilious clerks to find out something which he ought to have been able to find out at ten minutes notice i mislaid the m s at the time and never found it again until last april it was not a libel on the government in eighteen sixty seven mr stewart still lives to testify to that from boston a correspondent writes as follows please make a memorandum of this drop of comfort which i once heard a child-hating bachelor offer to his nieces at their father's funeral remember children this happens only once in your lifetime and don't cry it can't possibly occur again from alabama a friend responds to our call for touching obituaries with the following from an old number of the tuscaloosa observer the disease of this sufferer as per third stanza will probably never attack the author of his obituary and for good and sufficient reasons farewell thou earthy friend of mine the messenger was sent why do we repine why should we grieve and weep in jesus he fell asleep around his bed his friends did stand nursing with a willing hand anxiety great with medical skill the fever raged he still was ill his recovery we prayed but in vain the disease located on his brain death succeeded human skill pulse ceased to beat death chilled every limb death did not distorture his pale face how short on earth was his christian race with tears flowing from the youth and furrowed face he was consigned to his last resting resting place the lofty oaks spreading branches shades the grave of his dear sister addie and sweet little francis three children now in heaven rest should parents grieve jesus called and blessed a number of answers to the enigma published in the july galaxy have been received and filed for future reference i think one or two have guessed it but am not certain 
I got up the enigma without any difficulty, but the effort to find out the true answer to it has proved to be beyond my strength thus far. End of section 116